Hey, we're in this series, and I usually tell you to turn somewhere in your Bible, and I don't know where to tell you to turn this morning, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a flyover. So we're going to be several different places this morning, okay? So if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Matthew, and uh, you can lay it open in your lap, but we're going to be all over the place this morning. But there is a note page that's been provided, and you're going to want to grab that. I think there's some things that you're going to want to write down. This morning, if you call Grace Church your home, it might feel a little different might feel a little different as we talk about something that maybe you're like, ah, man, I never saw that coming. But I think it's so important that we talk about this. We started a series last week, and the series that we started was called The Way of Change. And here's why we started the series called The Way of Change. Because we just ended a year and began a new year, but we said this, we didn't just end an old year, begin a new year, we ended an old decade, right? That's what we said last week. And we started a brand new decade. And one of the things we said, when you look at the last decade, there is a lot of things that have changed. In fact, you guys have picked up on that and sent me some things. It's kind of fun, right? Told me some different things that have changed over the last 10 years. And it's been fascinating. And then we said this, we're going to stand here 10 years from today and things are going to be different. There's going to be a lot of changes 10 years from today. And it all told us this, that it's not if things are going to change, it's when they change, how are they going to change? Change is not an if question, it's a when, and then how is change going to happen? And so we said this, that for those, and some of you are in this boat, it's all by way of review, but for those of you in the room, you say, I'm a Christian. We said this, that for a lot of Christians, and if that's you, you're with me, a lot of Christians, we have this weird relationship with change. Here's what I mean by that. For a lot of Christians, we look at change kind of like decorating a Christmas tree, And so we talked about this last week, that for a lot of Christians, change is all about, I became a Christian and now I've got to decorate my life. I got to be really good, generous, kind. I got to do all these things. I got to go to church, all these things that I need to decorate my life with. And so for some of you, that's your entire Christian experience. Your entire Christian experience is decorating your life. And some of you are exhausted because it has been something where you just like grit out some change. For some of you, that is the very thing that makes you feel guilty. You think, I can never measure up. My tree doesn't look like somebody else's. My life's not as good as those, right? For some of you, it's the very thing that has caused you to give up on change because you've looked at other people in your life and you're like, man, I can't keep up, so I'm gonna give up. And then there's some of you, this whole idea of I gotta decorate, you're exhausted, decorating your life, trying to look better, impress others, get people's attention. And for some of you, that's why, you ready? That's why you're grumpy, right? That's why you call yourself a Christian and yet you're a grumpy Christian. And some of you are in there and you're like, I'm not a Christian. All those reasons are why you're not a Christian. Here's what we said, all by way of you, go on and check it out. We said this, that this reason for this weird relationship with change is because somewhere we have this fundamental, listen close, fundamental misunderstanding of the primary message of Jesus. The primary message of Jesus is not, ask me into your heart, become a Christian so you can go to heaven. Although those things are awesome and cool and true, that's not the primary message of Jesus. And that, when we think that is the primary message of Jesus, that creates this weird dynamic and relationship with change. But the primary message of Jesus is this, come follow me and be my disciple. And when you come follow me and attach your life to my life, the Christian experience or the experience of a disciple or a follower of Jesus 
Change isn't decoration I put on my life, but change is fruit that flows from my life, that grows and produced in my life because I have attached my life to Jesus. And the fruit that my life produces, the change is the fruit, is the life of Jesus lived out in me. So we did this, and, and then we'll get to where we're going today. We looked at a passage. I'm gonna just show you two verses in John 15. You don't need to turn there. We'll throw it on the screen. But here's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So he's saying, here's how we relate with each other. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much, say the word out loud, much what? Fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Then he says, verse eight, this is to my father's glory. This is, let's put it another way. Let's make modern day vocabulary. This is what matters to God. (laughs) This is what draws attention to God. That you bear much, what? Say it out loud, much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He says, remain in me. That's what I want you to do. I want you to attach your life to me and produce fruit. Well, it begs the question, how does that happen? Well, we went to another part of the Bible, the same guy wrote, and look what he said, 1 John 2. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Everybody look here a second. He's saying this, if you claim to be in Jesus, you must live as Jesus did. Now everybody look here, because that, that is the primary reason some of us are frustrated because we misunderstand what in the world is that talking about? We can't figure out because we're frustrated. We're like, I keep trying to do what Jesus did and I can't. I got my WWJD bracelet and I can't seem to get it. And we don't understand what John is saying here. He's saying, Dan, help me understand. I'd be happy to. When I was a kid, I used to watch my favorite professional athletes on TV. I used to watch guys like Earl Campbell. Raise your hand. You like Earl Campbell? Anybody? Yeah. John Riggins. Raise your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Like 12 of you. That's, I, I must be old, right? Uh, Billy White Shoes Johnson. Raise your hand if you know. I know you know him. Put your hand up, right? right? He scored a touchdown. He got like that, right? Like in the end zone. And what I would do is I'd watch them on TV. They would do incredible things. And then as a kid, I don't know if you did this or not, I would go out in my backyard and I would do what they did. I would emulate them. I was awesome. I was, I was everything they were. I was catch these passes. I'd run through these guys. I was out in that yard by myself. I was the commentator, the player, all those things. I was doing these incredible things until eventually I got old enough to play organized football in the seventh grade. And I just assumed I'd been emulating these guys. I've been watching them on TV. I'm going to go do what they did. And when I started playing organized football in the seventh grade with a whole bunch of others, I all of a sudden realized something, that I could not do what they did. No matter how many times in the backyard I tried to emulate them, there was something drastically missing. First is this, I did not have their DNA. Can I get an amen on that? Not that loud, but I didn't have their DNA, right? Second is this, here's where you need to stay with me. It's going to take us where we're going today. I did not realize as a kid that the person I saw for two hours on the TV, there was way more to their life than that. 
that when they weren't on the TV doing these incredible things, they were doing things that quite frankly, most of us don't do. They were eating ways that most of us don't eat. They had rhythms that most of us don't have. They exercised in ways that most of us don't exercise. They had a diligence that most of us don't have. And so what I was trying to do is live like they lived for those two hours when I saw them during game time, but I didn't live the way they lived all the rest of the time. You're saying, Dan, what's the point? That's the way a lot of us see Jesus. We come to church and we see game day Jesus. And we hear the preacher tell us about game day Jesus. Love your enemies. All right, WWJD, gonna love my enemies. And we go out and we all of a sudden got an enemy. And we're like, that's not as easy as the preacher made it sound, right? Or love like Jesus, be kind like Jesus, serve like Jesus. Like, I can't do this. And the reason many of us feel like we can't do this is because somewhere along the way, we thought what John was saying was, watch game day Jesus, go out and emulate game day Jesus, and we forget that game day Jesus, there's a whole bunch of other parts to Jesus. In fact, a guy named Dallas Willard, has, there's three books that influenced my thinking today, just today, as I've read three books for today, right? One was written by Dallas Willard, one by John Ortberg, if you like this kind of stuff, one by Richard Foster. Dallas Willard has a really long quote that's worth us reading. Can we do that? Say yes. Can we do that? Yes. Say yes for me. Just help a brother out. Yeah, okay. Here's what it says. We got to read the whole thing. You got to stay with me. He says, those exquisite responses we see The amazing timing and strength such an athlete displays aren't produced and maintained by the short hours of the game itself. They are available to the athlete for those short and all-important hours because of a daily regimen no one sees. And in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke or teaching, that's what a yoke was, of Jesus. The secret involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did in all of his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in our loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. And that's what this series is all about. We simply are wanting to, for the next 13 weeks, lean in and say, okay, then we don't wanna just talk about game day Jesus, but what were the rhythms of Jesus? What were the practices of Jesus? What were the things that mattered to Jesus? What did Jesus do when he wasn't on the screen, so to speak? What were the things that we can learn And so that's where we're gonna begin today. We're gonna begin looking at some of the practices of Jesus. And here's what you might be thinking, and you might be right. You might think, okay, some of the practices of Jesus. I bet Pastor Dan's gonna talk about reading your Bible. We will eventually, not today. I bet you might be thinking, well, I bet they're gonna talk about praying. We will, not today. I bet you might be thinking, I bet he's gonna talk about going to church because my grandma told me that's a good spiritual practice. And we'll talk about how that plays out in this, but not today. This morning, I want to talk to you about a spiritual practice in the life of Jesus that isn't talked about a ton. Yet, throughout church history, leaders, and some of them said the spiritual practice, look here, that I want to talk to you about today, some of those leaders in church history would say it is the most important practice of all. 
It's a practice you don't hear talked about often. And can I say this? I want to talk to you about something today that, quite frankly, I am not that good at. You okay with that? Like, I want to talk to you about something that I am in process with. And so I guess you're off the hook, right? You can watch me squirm this morning because this is something that I am transforming in, that I am learning in. You're saying, what do you want to talk to us about this morning, Dan? I want you to write it down this way. The way of change is practicing the presence of Jesus through solitude. The way of change is practicing the presence of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, remaining with Jesus, and it's practicing that presence of Jesus through this thing called solitude. Now, here's what I want to do this morning, okay? So it's going to feel a little different. I want to be as clear as I possibly can be, and I want to be as practical as I possibly can be. So we're going to do three things, three things. Here's the three things we're going to do. I'm going to answer three questions this morning so you know how we're going to lay this thing out. I want to look at, okay, if solitude is important, how did Jesus practice solitude? I want to look at number two, why is solitude so important? You ready? And so hard. So in case you didn't think we needed to talk about this today, point two, I want to talk to you about why we need to talk about it. And then the third thing I want to talk about is how can I practice solitude in my life? How did Jesus practice it? Why is it so important? And then how some practical, hands-on ways in which you and I can practice solitude. Let's start with Jesus, okay? Let's start. Matthew 3. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew, you can look there. Matthew 3. Here's what we have. We're going to do a flyover, a flyover of Jesus' life, okay? And here's the deal. When you get to Matthew 3, you see the very beginning of Jesus' public mission, and his ministry. So what you have up until this time is uh, in Matthew 1 and 2, you have the birth of Jesus, the line of Jesus, all the Christmas story. And then when you get to Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Everybody look here a second. Something interesting happens. Before Jesus does anything else publicly, he's an adult now. Before he does anything else publicly, here's what Matthew tells us. Matthew chapter 3 says this. Then, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, into the what? Say the word out loud, into the what? All right, I need more help than that. Into the what? Wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You ought to, if you write in your Bibles, I would circle this word wilderness. It's the word eremos. You can forget that. Here's all it means. It means a desert, a a solitary place, a quiet place. And here's what I don't want you to miss. Before Jesus does one thing, one thing in public ministry, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Now, I have heard this a gazillion times. I've heard a gazillion sermons on this. I've read a lot of books and articles about this. And yet, for the last two weeks, things have begun to look different to me because I've always heard preachers preach this, that in this wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus. And I've always heard preachers say that Satan came after Jesus in his moment of weakness because he's in the wilderness and he's fasting. And yet the, the truth of the matter is I began to rethink that, that maybe the reason the Spirit of God led him before he did anything, before he had any public mission or any public ministry, 
Maybe the reason that he led him into the wilderness and that's where he was tempted by Satan is because the wilderness or this solitary place or this quiet place or this place of solitude is not a place of weakness, but it was his place of strength. And maybe, just maybe, that's why Jesus kept going back there. It's a different way to think about it. Because Jesus frequented this kind of place Mark chapter one, just follow on the screens with me. I wanna show you how did this play out in Jesus' life. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off. That word went off, it's a Greek word, you can forget this, but he intentionally, he intentionally detached himself from others. It was his own decision. He went off to a solitary place If you write in your Bibles, you want to circle that word. It is the same word for wilderness in Matthew 3, a ramos. He went off to a lonely, uninhabited, quiet place where he prayed. He went off to to pray. He didn't just go to unplug. He went to plug in. He went to pray. Mark 6, 31. I want you to see this. This is Jesus the one that we talk about, the one that we look at, the one that we worship, the one that we follow, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and what? Get some rest. This is Jesus saying, I want you to break away come to a different place, and the word get some rest is, I want you to stop laboring. I want you to take a break. Luke says it this way in chapter five. Jesus, but Jesus, this is so key, we're gonna make some observations here, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That those two words often withdrew are one Greek word. Here's what it means. You can forget that. It means that he over and over and over, often, often he would retreat in order to pray. Last but not least, and then I wanna give you some things to write down. Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out, say these next two words out loud, went out what? As usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Those two words in your Bible, as usual, is the Greek word. You can forget this, but if you like this and want to impress your friends, you can, whatever. But the Greek word, ethos. And that word simply means this. It was his custom, his practice, and his habit. Over and over and over again in Scripture, in the Bible, in the story of Jesus, you see that Jesus and solitude had this interesting relationship, that solitude was something he sought, that solitude was something that was important. In fact, I would say this. If you got your pens ready, I want you to write these down. There are four observations that we can make this morning about Jesus and solitude. It's going to come in handy later, so it's worth writing down. First is this. For Jesus solitude was intentional. You read the account of Jesus, he planned solitude. He scheduled solitude. 
It was something that he intended. He made a conscious decision to withdraw himself. Second, for Jesus, solitude involved a place. Solitude. So he went to the Mount of Olives. He went to the wilderness. He went to different places to enjoy solitude. Third, for Jesus, solitude had a purpose. For Jesus, solitude was not just escapism. Jesus didn't just seek solitude so he could binge watch on Hebrew Netflix or something like that, right? Jesus went away to pray, to listen. He went away for a reason. Fourth is this. For Jesus, solitude was a habit. It was intentional. It involved a place. It had a purpose. And it was a habit, For some of you that have lived your entire Christian life, WWJD, it's important that you get this. I want to love like Jesus. I want to help like Jesus. I want to serve like Jesus. When we really get behind the curtain and we see Jesus, we begin to see that there's some rhythms in Jesus' life that quite frankly don't always show up in ours, which is why solitude is so important. It's why solitude is so important because it was important to Jesus. Everybody look here. But it's important for us to talk about because solitude is so countercultural that many of the church fathers said this is one of the most important spiritual practices. And yet, for many of us, we live in a hurried up world with tons of distractions. And this is something that, quite frankly, isn't part of our life. And it might be, look here, it might be why you feel empty this morning. It might be why you feel exhausted this morning. It might be why some of you feel disappointed in your spiritual life this morning. It's because we live in this hurried up, distracted world. In fact, I want you to write this down somewhere. Hurry and distraction are two of the greatest enemies to my spiritual life. Hurry and distraction are two of the greatest enemies to my spiritual life. One of the books I read in wanting to get ready to talk to you about something that, quite frankly, I can see in some of your eyes, you're like, I don't know that I need this. Just hang with me. Just hang with me. This, This particular practice is so challenging to me. And one of the books that I read for this particular Sunday was written by a guy named John Ortberg. He's a pastor. So so his life would be similar to mine in terms of what he does. And he wrote this in his book. Not long after moving to Chicago, I called a wise friend to ask for some spiritual direction. I described the pace of my life in my current ministry. The church where I serve tends to be very fast-paced. I also told my friend about our family rhythms. We were a van driving, soccer league, piano lesson, school orientation kind of family. I told him about my present condition of my heart as best as I could discern it. And then I asked him a question. Everybody listen to what he says. He says, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? The old man on the other end of the phone, his name was Dallas Willard, by the way, paused. By the way, don't you hate that? Some of us are uncomfortable even with a pause. I was thinking as Aiden was playing, and he said, hey, let's just take a minute and be quiet. 
I, I, I thought to myself, I wonder how many of us are in here saying, hurry up, what's next, you know? Like we're, we're uncomfortable with the pause. The guy paused and then he said this, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg says, okay, okay, Dallas, I've written that one down. That's a good one. Now what else is there to do? He said, I had many things on my to-do list and this was a long distance call and I was anxious to cram in as much spiritual wisdom and in as little time as possible. Long pause. There is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's interesting. Some different people have said some really fascinating things and if you can keep up with this, you might wanna write these down, but a guy named Carl Jung said this, hurry's not of the devil. Hurry actually is the devil. Some of you would be more familiar with this name, Corey Ten Boom. If the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Why is that? Because my sin and my busyness have the same effect. They disconnect me from God. They disconnect me from emotionally connecting with others. And quite frankly, sometimes they disconnect me from even being able to connect with my own self. We are busy and because we're busy, we're in a hurry. And because we're in a hurry, we become distracted. Where did this begin? How does this happen? Well, let's write a couple things down. First is this. This all happens because we have a need for speed, amen? We love speed. Some of you love speed. In fact, some of you watch a movie and if the movie is slow, you're like, that's not my kind, right? It was too slow. Wasn't fast pay. We like fast food. We like fast internet. We like fast cars. Quite frankly, some of you like fast sermons, right? Amen? Don't amen that, <laughs> right? I mean, there's this thing called drive-through church. I don't know if you know that. Like, How can I get church as quick as possible? We like fast. We find ourselves as a culture trapped in this need for speed. And here's how it works. We feel like we got to hurry up, hurry up so that we can have more time. And it's like this hamster wheel. And we have this need to, where did it all begin? Well, I'm not sure, but one of the books I was reading said it might've began in 1370. You're like, what happened in 1370? Well, 1370 was the first public clock that was erected in Germany. And at that point, we shifted from listening to our bodies to watching the clock. And then another shift happened in 1879. You know what happened then? It was a history lesson. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Now it was possible to stay up past sunset. You may not know this, I had to research this before Edison, before Edison, the average person slept 11 hours a night. Can I get an amen on that? Some of you, some of y'all, you're worn out, grumpy, gritty Christians because you read about these heroes in the Christian world who get up at three o'clock and they pray for a couple hours. They went to bed at 5.30, you know what I'm saying? The average now, 11 hours, the average now, seven. Seven hours a night. You see, we're in this constant world of where we gotta hurry up to buy more time. I mean, this is fascinating stuff to me, such that Time Magazine noted that back in the 1960s, in the 1960s, say that out loud, 1960s, 
That's a long time ago. Most of y'all weren't around then, right? 1960s, expert testimony was given to a Senate subcommittee on time management. The essence of it was this. They said this. This is the, did I say 1960s? 1960s. Because of advances in technology, they said within 20 years, that's the 1980s, within 20 years or so, people would have to radically cut back on how many hours a week they worked, how many weeks a year they worked, and maybe start retiring sooner. And they said this, did I say the 1960s? In the 1960s, they said, the great challenge will be in the 1980s, what will people do with all of their free time? Wouldn't you love to talk to that Senate subcommittee? See, our innovate, by the way, there's nothing wrong with innovation. Can we get that out? Nothing wrong with innovation, but you know what? If we're honest, our innovation, if we really look at it, all it's served to do, it's good and it's brought advances, but in large part, it has eroded our concentration. And here's what happens. We have become addicted to distraction. And you know it. This is not me condemn. You know it, I know it. It's our life. We always have something on. I met with a guy Friday. He's like, I get in the car, boom. I don't even think about it. Turn the radio on. Always, we got always something in. Like if you're younger, you know what I'm talking about, right? And now they don't even have wires to them, right? There's these buds that you put in your ear, like talking to somebody. They don't talk about it, like, oh, they got something in, right? We always have something going on that create distraction. We are addicted to distraction. I looked this up. Some of you use a smartphone in here. Maybe some of you don't. I don't know. But the average, I had to look this up several ways because I'm like, this is crazy. Average smartphone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Whoa, is what I said too, right? That means in this one hour service, some of y'all about 200 times going to touch your phone. Stop it, all right? That's what it means, right? Sean Parker, listen to this. Now lean in. This is not me picking on social media. You got me? This is not it. You got to understand what's going on if we're going to get to where Jesus wants to take us. Sean Parker, you're like, who was he? First president of Facebook. First president of Facebook. He now calls himself a conscientious objector to social media. Why? Well, listen. He says, and I quote, God only knows what it is doing to our brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about this. How do we consume as much of your time and attention as possible? That means we will hit you with a little dopamine every once in a while so that someone likes your comments or friends you and feeds you a little dopamine just to keep your attention. One of the scary results or trends of that is this, our attention span is dropping. Before the digital revolution, our attention span was about 12 seconds. That's not great, but that's what it was, right? Post the digital revolution, it has dropped from 12 seconds to eight. To put it into context, a goldfish is nine. We're losing to goldfish, friends. What's the point? The, the biggest commodity that they want is your attention. Why? Because what your attention goes to, your devotion goes to. And where your devotion goes, there goes your life. 
And all of that leads to a real phenomenon, and it is a phenomenon called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness is real. Psychologists are beginning to label this disease called hurry sickness. It's a behavior pattern characterized by a continual rushing and anxiousness. Some of you feel that way this morning. Another definition says this, it's a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time, never have enough time. There's never enough time in the day. You ever feel that way? Never enough time. And so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of deep delay. You ever been like that? Something delays you, you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like throws everything off, like dominoes, just like this. Another doctor Describes it this way, it's a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. It leads me to, to, to want to do something with you, and I've already done this once, but, and I got in trouble because uh, I had too many things for you to write down in too little time, and so we have to hurry, right? But uh, I want you to, self, can you guys self-diagnose yourself? Can you do that this morning to shake your head? I, need, I want you to ask yourself, do I have hurry sickness? And here's, I have one that's already diagnosed, all right? <laughs> but I have, 11, I have nine things I want you to write down. These are worth thinking about. You ready? Here's nine. These aren't original with me. I got them out of the three books that I read. First is this. I need to ask myself, am I constantly multitasking? I, I don't know about you. Has anybody noticed that hurry sick people drive, eat, drink, text, and put their makeup on all while driving and giving you a hand gesture at the same time, you know? Like, do I multitask? Am I always multi? I got to figure out ways to do several things at once all the time. It doesn't mean there's never a time to multitask. That's not what this means. Second, I need to ask myself, am I, and don't look around, just think about yourself, right? Am I irritable, hypersensitive, or restless? I might be hurry sick. Am I irritable? Do I get irritated with the lady in line in front of me in the grocery store because she's not going fast enough? Do I always have to edge into the other lane because it might leave sooner? Am I the person who's always blowing my horn? Can I get an amen? Don't look around, right? Do minor things hurt my feelings disproportionately? Do I have trouble sleeping or slowing down? Here's a third one. Here's a third one. Uh, am I superficial? Am I superficial? Richard Foster, one of the books I read, said this, superficiality is the curse of our age. Depth, this is worth writing down. It, listen, I would say this. I work with a lot of young adults. If you're 30 or younger, I want you to write this down somewhere. Just, just write it down just for an old man's sake. Depth comes slowly. Depth comes slowly. Ortberg says it this way. We've largely traded wisdom for information. We want as much information. Got to get it quick, 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 quick. And we've lost the pursuit of wisdom. We've traded depth for breadth. Fourth, fourth is this. If I'm honest, this fourth one is probably the one that might have been the most convicting to me. Do the people that I love the most and that matter the most to me get the leftovers? Something called sunset fatigue. I can't tell you the amount of times I come home and I stare at my wife and there's nothing in me. And the reason there's nothing in me is because I jam three days into one. And so what she gets is what's left. By the way, if you're hurry sick, it's not a judgment or a condemnation. I'm hurry sick. I have hurry sickness. Am I a workaholic? 
Am I addicted to the drugs of accomplishment and accumulation? If I think just work a few more hours, I'll buy somewhere, just a few more hours. Number six, let's race through these last ones. Am I emotionally numb? Do I have an inability to empathize, an inability to love? The speed of love is always slow. That's worth writing down somewhere, different sermon. Speed of love is slow. Seven, do I neglect taking care of my body? This is, a, this is an interesting one, right? Do I always have to grab fast food because I don't have time to make my lunch? See what I mean? And then I don't know what to do because the Big Macs show up, but I don't have time to exercise. See what I'm saying? I don't have time to sleep right. Are my priorities out of whack? How about this? Do I engage in escapism behaviors like vegging, binging, addictions? Our need for speed has left us exhausted, empty, and for many of us, disappointed. It reminds me of a story, and then we're going to slide to some real practical take-home stuff. Read this story. It was fascinating to me. It happened in the state of Washington. It's been several years ago. But it was about these people who lived in Washington owned this dog. And this dog that they owned, this dog's name was Tattoo. It was a basset hound dog. And they loved their dog, Tattoo, and it's an interesting name for a dog. And they wanted to take their dog for a walk at their favorite park, which was 20 miles away. And so they're all going to get in the car with Tattoo, the basset hound dog, and we're going to go for a walk 20 miles away. They got everything the dog needed. Everything's in the car. They call the dog to the car, and they shut the door, and everything's great. And they drive the 20 miles to their favorite park. But what they didn't realize in calling the dog to the car, the dog never fully got in the car, only his leash got in the car. And for 20 miles, that basset hound's like, paws are up and going, it's rolling, it's flying, it's trying, <gasps> its tongue is out. In fact, it makes you wonder, what does a basset hound look like that's had a trip like that? Maybe it looks something like, I don't know, something like that, right? State patrolmen saw this going on. I'm happy to report all you dog lovers, the dog was fine. The dog was exhausted, right? The dog couldn't keep up. The dog felt leashed to something that it just couldn't keep up with. And that's the way some of you feel. Because you've been molded into, you've been molded into a rhythm that our world and our culture has somehow led you to believe that's what it takes, that's what matters. It makes me think of a passage in Romans 12. Out of the message, it says this. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Like, what do I need to do for God? Embrace what he's done for you. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention in this distraction, hurry up, need for speed world. Fix your attention on God. And then he goes on to say this, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I read this, and I'll get the quote wrong, but look here a second. The biggest fear isn't that many of you will renounce and walk away from your faith. Look here. The biggest fear is that many of us will settle for a mediocre version of our faith. 
with the leash of our life connected to the rhythm of our culture. Hurry up, faster, faster, more, 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 more. And even some of you in the room, even some of you, your Christian experience is what is exhausting you. Because I gotta do one more and I gotta get, and I gotta read this book, and I gotta know this, and I gotta go here, and I gotta see this person, and I gotta ta-ta-ta-ta, and you're exhausted. And you got so many Christian books and self-help and so many groups you're in. I'm just like, man, I don't, ah, 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 ah. And Jesus says, shh, come follow me. In fact, the call of Jesus in Matthew 11 is fascinating. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Maybe even you're burned out on religion. Jesus says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it, and learn, this is so fascinating, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or fitting on you. Keep company with me, abide with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That sound good to anybody? Like I read that and I'm like, I'm in. And that is so counter to the mold our culture wants to fit us into. It leads to the last question and, and we'll spend the last five minutes here and I want you to write some things down because I told you I want to be blatantly practical. How can you and I practice solitude? But let me give you some ways, and this is worth writing down. First is this. I told you this would come in handy. I need to be intentional about solitude, just like Jesus. I need to be intentional about solitude, just like Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but this is something that has struck me. If you can't tell, this whole topic has convicted me. Jesus was busy. Like, can I tell you guys something? I'm busy. Jesus was busy. I'm not busier, and Jesus was busy, but Jesus was never in a hurry. I begin to think about why was that? Well, you look at the life of Jesus, and he was intentional about solitude. How do I be intentional about solitude? Three words I'd write underneath of that is this. First is I need to be intentional about silence. If I wanna begin being intentional about solitude, here's a practical way to do it, that I need to be intentional about inviting silence. We do not have many silent moments. In fact, I think we're afraid of silence sometimes. And yet Richard Foster would say, without silence, there's no solitude. You're saying, how do I do that? I don't know. You figure this, how it plays out in your life. Can I tell you some of the ways it's played out in mine? I think that's easier for me to do this morning because I've been challenged by this. When I go to Silver Creek, I like to walk three, four, maybe five miles. And what I do when I get there is the very first thing I do, I get out of my car. And you know what I do? I do what many of you do. I put in my what? Earbuds. You know why? Because if I'm gonna work three, four, five miles, I'm not gonna waste the time. I gotta be learning something, finding out something, getting some information on something. I gotta be doing something. And so if I'm gonna walk, I've gotta... In the last two weeks, I've done something that's been radical. You're like, you're, man, you need help. But I've done radical for me. I left my earbuds in the car. And I thought, this is going to be the worst walk ever. And it's amazing. And I've begun to just walk in silence. Just walk in silence. It's amazing the things you begin to listen and hear. 
And it's amazing the things you begin to think and it's amazing the conversation you begin to have. I have several, several meetings in Fairlawn and my habit of life was to get in my car and I would turn on Mike and Mike. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Mike and Mike, anybody know? Yeah? I'd get caught up on the sports news of the day, right? I have begun the habit of getting in my car intentionally turning off my radio and taking 15, 20 minutes of silence. You see, I need to begin to be intentional about silence, but not just that. I'd write this word down. I need to be intentional about slowing the pace of my life down. Now, for some of you, that's not going to be hard. But if you're like me, type A, raise your hand. If you say, I'm type A, man, I'm kind of all, yeah, okay. That is something that's intentional. Like, how do I do that? Well, let me just tell you some of the ways that I've been challenged with these books I've been reading. Here's one. This is revolutionary. None of you would have ever thought this. But here's a way to slow your life down. You ready? You ready? Write it down. Ready? Drive the speed limit. (laughs) I know, never crossed your mind, did it, huh? Try doing it. I've been trying doing it the last two weeks. It's not as easy as it sounds. Get in the longer line of the grocery store. You mean on purpose? Yeah, try it. See what happens, right? Here's one that I tried and I couldn't even do this morning at four in the morning. Come to a full stop at a stop sign. Like, people really do that? Yes, people do that, right? Plan a meal together as a family. Journal your experiences. Here's one. All the parents in the room, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to parents. Quit always multitasking. I know there's times you have to. And quit, listen, I want to say this with gentleness. Decide and be intentional that you're not going to disciple your children to be multitaskers. Our children are addicted to busy because we want them in everything. I remember as a kid laying underneath the sky, looking up at the sky thinking, wow, I wonder what that is. I wonder what that could be. I wonder what's behind those clouds. Today, I meet with tons of families. Well, after I have dance, I have basketball, then we got to go swimming, then we got to homework, and then we got parents be intentional about solitude in your children's life the other word i'd write down is scheduling be intentional about scheduling schedule times for solitude which means why not start scheduling times for your tv to be on and therefore tv to be off here's one that i'm doing schedule time you'll check email i live with this angst that when you send me an email you want an immediate response and if you don't get an immediate response from me you're gonna be frustrated with me. So I'm admitting to you right now, you're probably not gonna get an immediate response from me, okay? Because I wanna check my email at a certain time of the day. Because what happens when all day long, I don't know if you're like me, I check my email. It's like on my phone, which is an incredible convenience and an incredible distraction. Because when I check it, I assume you're standing right in front of me and I gotta answer right now. I'm like, or they'll be mad at me, right? Schedule times for your phone to be on and off. Plan a Daily time of solitude. Begin with the first five minutes of your day. Plan a weekend of solitude sometime this year. Be intentional. Second is this. Find your places of solitude just like Jesus. Find your places of solitude just like Jesus. I would say there's two things with this. Recognize the small spaces that already exist. Like I already mentioned, in your car on the way to work, turn the radio off. There is 10 minutes, 20 minutes of solitude. 
But second, I would say find your special place of solitude and then go there. For some of you, that's a walk in the woods. For others of you, it's by the lake. Some of you, I can see in your eyes, some of you are like, you don't know my life, right? Some of you are moms and you feel that way, right? And you're like, you, what? You want me to whatever? Well, I want to tell you about a story that is very, very incredible to me. It's about a lady named Suzanne. And she has impacted all of your lives. Did you know that? All of your lives she's impacted because she had two boys that were very, very influential in church history. Their names were Charles and John and their last names were Wesley. Charles and John Wesley were two sons of Suzanne Wesley who happened to have, she had, you ready? Lena, 19 kids. Talk about a woman needs solitude, amen, right? She had lots of disappointment in her life. She lost several, went through some really hard things. And yet she found a place of solitude. You're like, where did she find a place of solitude? She's got 19 kids running around. It's a fascinating story. But Suzanne Wesley would work all day long with these 19 kids around. She had a long flowing apron. And sometime during the day, she would take that apron and she'd flip it over her head and she'd sit in a chair. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I tried it at my house. It didn't work. But I, you know, she flipped it over her head and she sat in a chair and that was her moment. What did she know? She knew I need intentional space. I need time. And that was her time to pray. Sometimes she had under there her journal. Sometimes she had a Bible. You see, here's what I know. If it mattered to Jesus and he says, come with me, learn from me. Somehow I need to be intentional. Somehow I need to find my place. I would write this down. Be purposeful about your solitude, just like Jesus. It's not empty escapism. Solitude is not isolationism. It's not escapism. It's not just I'm going to go and kind of binge or I'm going to go and veg. It's being purposeful. I would write these words underneath. They're just some ideas. Go away to pray. When you walk, pray. When you sit by the, the lake, pray. Take your journal and write in it. Plan to read. You read what? Well, I would start with the Bible. Take your Bible and begin to read. Plan to listen. That's what I did on my walk. I'm like, I wonder what I might hear. Plan to rest. That is the biggest challenge for me. I'm just being honest with you this morning. I had this mentality, and I thought it, I thought it was godly, to be honest with you, that, that heaven's for rest. Like, we get to heaven, we'll rest, right? And yet the truth is, Jesus said, why don't you come away and rest a while? Last but not least, I want you to write this down, then we gotta land this, this, uh, this plane. Make solitude your habit, just like Jesus. It was Jesus' ethos or his habit, and solitude became his rhythm. It wasn't just a retreat once in a while. It wasn't something he caught if he could but it was his habit, his pattern, his practice of life. There's a quote out of the book entitled Quiet that says this, every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. Let me ask you a question, then I'm done. What would it look like for you to come away with Jesus and learn his unhurried rhythms of grace? 
what would it look like for you to begin to intentionally eliminate distraction? Not just so you can eliminate distraction, but so that you can give attention and remain with Jesus. What would it look like for some of you to begin to intentionally, purposefully start slowing your life? To start finding times of silence in your life. (laughs) I already know what some of you are thinking. Honestly, I do. Some of you grew up good, rule-keeping Christians. It's like, man, Pastor Dan, there's another decoration, man. I need to hurry up and go do this, along with all the other things. You'll miss the point. Silence and solitude isn't just another decoration to put on your tree. But there's others of you. You're like, there's no way I can do that. There's no way. You don't know my life, Dan. To which I would say two things to you. And I would say them kindly. You don't know my life. And who am I to think that somehow my life is busier than Jesus' life? You see, when I start running faster than the one I'm following, I stop following him. And somewhere Jesus' invitation is somewhere between. It says, no, it's not decoration on your Christian life. And I don't want you to give up on this and just live the rest of your life with the leash of your life somehow latched to the doorway of a world that says faster, more, distraction. But he's saying, I want you to come away. And I want you to intentionally plan into your life these times where you have the opportunity to connect with me in a way that, quite frankly, our culture doesn't leave much margin for. To, to purposefully turn something on so that you can begin to plug in. And I think what Jesus is saying is this, is you at that moment go from decorating your life, exhausted decorating your life, to abiding and remaining in him in a way that begins to change your life and produce fruit that looks like the one who practiced it in his own life. And you may be amazed at the fruit that begins to grow from your life as you follow Jesus in the way of change. I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, I just would like to tell you that there's gonna be some people at the front, and they're here just to pray with you if you wanna pray. Some of you maybe came in here dragging a lot of baggage. Maybe some of you came in here and something I said, you're like, I find that's gonna be hard, and I just wanna pray with somebody. Maybe you just feel lonely, and you're like, I just wanna go pray with somebody. These are lovely, wonderful people, and they're just going to be at the front. We're going to do this after every service, and they're just going to be here to pray with you and give you a chance to say, would you just pray with me and ask God to help me, or can we just talk to God about this together? And I invite you to do that. They'll be here at the front. No music, no emotional plea. Just you can come pray because God, a lot of us are here today, and we're, we're exhausted, we're tired, We are so distracted, we're busy, we're even having trouble paying attention right now, maybe, I don't know, because we've got 4011 things that we got to do before the day comes to an end, just so we can start the day on the right foot tomorrow. And I pray that if we get nothing else, you would help us to hear your voice saying, come away with me, learn from me. 
That for some of us that might be eliminating hurry, for some that might be eliminating distraction so that we can pay attention, so that we can enjoy the very presence of you in our life in a way that we can respond to it and it would grow fruit. God, I'm gonna tell you this right up front and I'm gonna say it for my friends in this room. There's nothing about this lesson or sermon or conversation today that fits easily into this culture we live. Nothing about it. I can't wait to go home and turn the TV on so I can see who's winning the ball game. I can't wait to hear the next podcast so I can learn the next thing. And those are all fine and good. But God, there's nothing that's easy about this. And yet I so desperately want to follow. I don't want to run ahead of, I want to follow Jesus. And I know for me, I desperately need to be intentional. I desperately need to schedule. I desperately need to find places of solitude. I desperately need to have a purpose to hear from you, to communicate with you. And I desperately want it to be the ethos or the habit of my life. And so help me and my friends this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.